Matt, I've got a joke for you as we kick this off. Oh, how do angels greet one another? <laughs> I don't know, Dave. How do angels greet one another? They say hello. <laughs> well, yeah, that's so bad. It's actually making me laugh. Yeah, well, it works, doesn't it? Hello, <laughs> hello, and I have no idea if angels have halos. Well, I was just going to ask what your um, theological scriptural justification for giving angels halos is. Bagel. I've got zero. Oh, no. Well, it's just, well, you see, <laughs> you see at Christmas, don't you? They all have halos over their heads. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. So, kind of a traditional thing, isn't it? Yeah. That's just a wee fun, fun bit to get us going because we're thinking about <laughs> angels. Well, technically we're not, aren't we? We were thinking about how Jesus is better than angels. Yeah. Yeah. We were talking about this earlier, weren't we? The, the, the big idea is in this passage isn't angels at all but they're they're there for a reason for a contrast aren't they yeah so you made the stunning comparison between me and the writer of the hebrews thank you for that compliment <laughs> i wasn't completely equating you but I was, yeah there was a compliment in there you said about how the author has these rhetorical devices like using yeah. uh, rhetorical questions what other sort of rhetorical devices can people look out for in hebrews i think uh, he uses repetition really well so, as I mentioned, Sunday, he uh, uses the phrase um, and again and again a few times. Yeah. Use it again and again, funny enough. Yeah. Chapters one and two, for example, he um, he introduces the idea of priest and then starts using the word priest regularly, more and more regularly. So that that's flagging up to the listeners. Oh, this is going to be a thing, priesthood. Um, I mentioned last week that uh, he uses the word better again and again. And that's why we're calling the series Better. better yeah. um, she talks about better things in chapter six, better hope in chapter seven, better covenant in chapter seven, better promises in chapter eight, better sacrifices, chapter nine. And it, it, the tempo starts to build up and up. And you know, this idea of being better is, is a huge thing. Mm. Rest is a repeated idea, a repeated yeah. theme. Um, uh, and he often seems to introduce ideas just like a bit of a drop in. Yeah, like Melchizedek in chapter five, isn't it? Yeah, like who, who? Yeah, and then he doesn't explain much about it, but comes back to it later on. And six and so seven, he's like yeah. piquing the listeners' interest and coming back to it. That's probably something we could learn from better, isn't it? Yeah. Um, and he also uses, um, I suppose, what you could call theological shapes, theological structures, which are obviously pagan um, preachers and orators wouldn't have done. But things like promise and fulfillment, he's showing that promises in the old yeah. fulfilled in Christ already not yet we've already got so much in christ we've entered his rest mm. but there's another sense which we haven't entered his rest we haven't got it all yet um shadows and types something we'll come back to later on but yeah. that these these things these events these people in the old testament who are clearly put there yeah to point forward to christ he brings all that out and weaves it all together and he just builds our interest as we go through with some of the they're just some of the devices he uses i think I think I I will find that hard whenever it comes to preaching passages where Melchizedek, for example, is mentioned and you almost need to know, okay, he's going to develop that more. Yeah. I, I don't need to say everything because he's going to come back to that in chapter seven. That's yeah. the challenge, isn't it? Yeah. Because you might be sitting <laughs> on a Sunday and think, why do you not talk more about Melchizedek? I have no idea who that is. You're mm. like, well, you're going to find out more next week. Yeah. Just to repeat, stop repeating yourself, basically. <laughs> yeah. Um, that that's the that's the challenge for us as hearing it again, preachers again. with a small p who are preaching from a bible book yeah. is that because we're coming back to it week after week we don't want to be repeating too much 
but in his sermon, he's doing that for a reason. Yeah, very true. So we read in, I think this is linked to verse five as well. We read that Jesus has inherited a superior name. This mm. could be a quick answer, I think. What does that mean, that Jesus has a superior name to angels? I love the fact you're confident this can be a quick answer, Dave, because uh, yeah, I'm not so sure about that. Yeah. Well, go ahead. <laughs> yeah, well, the, the name he's inherited um, in verse 4, I think that's linked to, to what he says, uh, the writer says in verse 2 as well. In these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, and through whom he made the universe. So I think it's the same basic idea. So the son has always been the heir in the sense that the universe has always belonged to him. Mm. He's always had a superior name to angels, verse 4, because he's the eternal son of God. But I think what the writer here is doing, he's alluding to him being appointed the heir and inheriting a name as the incarnate, risen, ascended son. So he's always been these things. But now as the God-man, since his resurrection and ascension, he's been appointed Heir. he has inherited a name so what the way one writer puts it you've got to be a bit careful with this language but you could say that that the son's experience of sonship changed in one sense okay when he became a man and lived and died and rose again his, his divine nature didn't change he can't change in that sense mm. but his experience of sonship entered a different phase and changed in, in another sense because he was the incarnate son of god who'd come to live and die uh, for sinners and that's all connected with god's public declaration that this risen man was his son and i think you mentioned verse five yeah again there's the same basic idea in verse five uh, for to which of the angels did god ever say you are my son today i've become your father or today i've begotten you mm. that doesn't mean that he ever began to exist because yeah. he didn't he's the eternal son but in context it seems to be saying that in his um, in the context of Psalm 2, in his coronation, his installment as king, he is being begotten as God's son. So in other words, in his resurrection and ascension, God is saying, I'm saying publicly, you are my son. Yeah. And you are now exalted. Yeah. Okay. So maybe let's, let's think more about angels as a whole, because you mentioned on Sunday that throughout Scripture, Angels tend to inspire fear because they are awesome. Mm. They are they cause us to be filled with awe. So if Jesus is better than angels, why do we so often not have a view of Jesus that inspires fear <laughs> or awe? Because I imagine the readers, whenever they heard accounts of Jesus' life, whenever people encountered Jesus, they didn't drop down in fear. Mm. So they're probably thinking, well, yeah. all these angels seem so much better than Jesus. So what do we do there? Um, I, th I think the reason to the, one of the questions in there is why do we you know, not have that? Yeah, I did that annoying thing where I asked. You did a lawyer thing questions, there. Multiple yeah. questions. So yeah. I think I got you. If Jesus is better than angels, why do we not have an awe-filled yeah. vision of him? Well, it's a really searching question, isn't it? Because um, I, I find myself researching this and getting excited about angels. Yeah. And um, the point is to be getting excited about Christ. Yeah. Maybe for some of us, it's because we just we've known the gospel for such a long time, yeah. and familiarity leads not to contempt, I hope, but to a lack of awe. Um, yeah. Because Jesus is our brother, because he's our friend, we talk to him every day. There's a danger of losing the awe of him. Yeah. Um, maybe for others of us, it's because we don't regularly meditate on God's word yeah. um, and passages like this. Just think over them, chew over them, chat about them, pray over them. 
the bottom line is, I think when we, whenever we don't worship as we should, um, when we don't have the awe of God and of the Lord Jesus that we should, the bottom line is probably that this side of glory is our sin and getting in the way mm. and the devil's opposition probably. Yeah. Um, and we just need to keep going back to the means of grace, yeah. like the word and meditating on them. So some passages that might help us be filled with awe. Yeah. Um, well, I, I mentioned this in our life group. Uh, last week is the chapter ones I find really helpful. John yeah. one, Colossians one, Hebrews one, Revelation one. Yeah, there's just some wonderful stuff in there about um, Jesus and His glory and who he, you could add he, um, Philippians two, but that spoils the pattern because that's a two. <laughs> so I would go with John one, Colossians one, Hebrews one, Easy Revelation one, and also just ask. You know, when we're aware that we don't have the awe of our Savior, that we should ask Him to create that awe in us yeah. and talk to each other about how awesome He is. Yeah. So I this is an annoying question. So disclaimer. So we read Hebrews one fourteen that angels are ministering spirits that mm. serve us. Yeah. What what does that practically look like? <laughs> like can we actually know that? Because I don't know if there's much yeah. detail given in Hebrews about this. It's almost like a throwaway comment no there's not there's not a lot of detail given in the new testament about exactly what it looks like i think it's about drawing inferences and being a, but being a bit careful with them we don't go too far so um presumably as they're spiritual beings normally invisible um we're often totally unaware of their presence and what they're up to and yeah. um, probably that's a good thing because we can get distracted otherwise and end up focusing too much on angels and not thinking enough about the lord mm. But the, the Bible's descriptions of their activities in the Old Testament and New Testament give us some clues uh, about what they get up to in service of God and service of us. Um, I mean, interesting, I was thinking about this, th this this week. One function they clearly show, but we need to be careful about in these last days since Jesus' resurrection, is that they're messengers. The very word angel in Hebrew in the Old Testament and in the New Testament Greek means messenger. Mm. And many times in Scripture, they're God's messengers to human beings. So... They announced Jesus' birth. Um, they were involved in delivering the Sinai covenant, the, the law of Moses in some way. Yeah. So they're, they're messengers. But, of course, we live in new covenant days with a completed Bible. And whilst I wouldn't want to rule out angels ever having some sort of messenger function today, we should be very cautious. The fact that someone feels an angel has told them something needs to be very carefully weighed. In fact, Galatians 1 verse Eight, we're actually warned to weigh up hypothetical messages yeah. from angels <laughs> against the true gospel, the true word of God. Um, so Paul's saying, hey, even if you think an angel said this to you, if it doesn't match up with what you've been taught, it's not true. Yeah, it's it's tied into what we looked at last week, isn't it? About in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son. Yeah. So the fact that the script, the canon scriptures clues, God is saying that it is better for us. He well, he knows it's better for us to hear from his word rather mm. than from an angel. Exactly. And there's it, kind of a parallel with what we believe about prophecy today. Yeah. So if you believe that God still gives words today, which, which I do, yeah. it's getting that right and seeing that that is the only infallible revelation we have is scripture and everything, any message we think we might be getting from the Lord has to be weighed against scripture. Scripture is our supreme norm, our supreme authority. Yeah. So I think you've got to be really careful about angels being messengers yeah. today, um, though I wouldn't want to rule it out. I think where we're on more solid ground um, and an area that's more likely to represent their regular function today is when we consider that mm -hmm. in Scripture, they also care for and protect and deliver God's people. Yeah. So just a couple of a few examples. 
one kings 19 is wonderful basically a, an angel turns up and presumably cooks and provides elijah with a meal to sustain him yeah um an angel shut the lion's mouths in the den with daniel yeah. uh angel delivered peter from prison um an angel delivered jerusalem from the assyrian army i mentioned that example on yeah. on sunday now obviously they're particularly obvious and amazing examples but they give us hints, I think, as to what angels are more often doing behind the scenes without our knowledge. They're protecting and delivering us from harm at times. In, in any case, our focus should be not on angels, but prayer to our Heavenly Father in Jesus' name for protection. So all those things you just mentioned, is that linked to the idea of guardian angels? Um, it depends what you mean by guardian angels. Okay. Um, so it's, it's linked to the idea of guardian angels in the sense that Angels are definitely our guardians to some degree. Okay. That's, I'm sure that's one of the things they do to serve God and to serve those who will inherit salvation. But if by guardian angels you're talking about the idea that each person has has an appointed guardian angel, I'd have to say I think that's possible, but it's far from certain. So biblically speaking, the idea comes from Matthew 18, yeah, where Jesus true. says, See to it, you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. Uh, now, whether little ones there is talking specifically about children or specifically about believers, that, that's up for debate. Yeah. But um, I think the point is each individual Christian having a guardian angel can't be proven from this, this verse. It's possible. What this means is that the little ones have a particular class of angels who watches over them, or maybe it means more generally that angels generally represent these little ones before the throne of god um it's hard to be sure but the idea is certainly meant to be a comforting one the little ones are important to god yeah but the exact involvement of angels isn't clear um and i, I don't think we can say from scripture that each person has an individual guardian angel yeah i wouldn't want to rule it out maybe we'll find out that's true one day but i, I don't think you can prove it from scripture what's much clearer is the exact role of jesus yeah. in caring for us yeah. as our prophet priest and king i feel bad because we've said all along jesus is better but i keep asking more questions about angels um <laughs> isn't it? well yeah it's inevitable isn't it i bet the first hearers and readers did the same thing yeah but i think you've already alluded to it so you can just can this one if you think it's not fair but i think if someone in our church said that they had been helped by an angel this week i would have think they had been on something <laughs> wacky backy um is that me being too cynical uh Maybe, maybe right. a little bit. Hard, crusty uh, Northern Irish. If you go, system. if you just go straight there, that they're crazy. That's probably a little bit, a little yeah. bit harsh. But I, I do, I do sympathise where you're coming from. Do um, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Certainly, um, no human claim that a person has been helped by an angel is infallible. Mm. So you, we need to weigh up anything we're told about stuff. You know, it's when people, like people say, well, the Lord said to me, well, how do you know the Lord said to me? How does that stand up to scripture? Same as someone's seen an angel. Yeah. I wouldn't want to rule it out, but well, tell me more about it. Because you would expect that if angels are active in, in the world, as the word says, we'd expect from time to time, at least, to hear about possible angel involvement. Yeah. So uh, we, we can be a bit too cynical, maybe. I, I can think of, well, I, I won't name this person, but people can ask me who it is. Off, offline if they like i think of someone in church who's told us in life group about accounts of experience with angels and i i believe what they've said and i think that was angelic involvement yeah. uh, even though this person isn't infallible it just makes sense um but i think if someone claims for example regular meetings with angels especially if those meetings aren't scary or if they involve lots of detailed guidance from an angel yeah 
I think we're entitled then to be at least a little bit skeptical because if you think about it, even most of the major characters in scripture didn't seem to have regular experiences of angelic help. Yeah. Um, but then I don't think we can rule out the fact that when we get to glory, we may find that God used angels a lot for our protection. Yeah. It's where, where the emphasis lies. If someone's life is all about angelic appearances and messages from angels, that's not a scriptural balance, is it? No. Yeah, I suppose if off the back of this sermon and this podcast, people think, I want to pray to God that he'll show me more angels. Like, no, 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 no. You should be praying that you yeah. see more of Jesus. Exactly. Um, and I'm thinking of the, the person who's told a few accounts of, um, well, an account I can think of uh, uh, where he believed an angel appeared and helped. Um, it wasn't something that happened every day there yeah. was no message from god it was just they were really helped yeah. and protected which really seems to fit with what scripture would say yeah, yeah. and Praise the, the, glory, the glory went to god yeah. yeah exactly so we had seven references in the old testament about angels not necessarily showing in any of these but there's an old testament figure who is called the angel of the lord who comes up quite a lot and he seems to do god-like things or speaking on behalf of god yeah. Is the angel of the Lord just an angel or is he is it a theophany? Is he uh, Jesus appearing in <laughs> angelic form? Um, I'm laughing because I, you, you know this is a loaded question, don't you? Yeah. This, this is a big area of debate amongst Bible-loving Christians. Yeah. And it, I have to say, it's not a debate that it matters hugely which side you, you land on at all because no. Jesus can be glorified either way. Um, there, there are definitely occasions when the angel of the Lord... Um, in the Old Testament is spoken of in divine terms and yeah. seems to be addressed not only as a messenger of God, but seemingly as God himself. Yeah. And many Christians, me included, believe that at least on some of those occasions, the angel of the Lord, for example, when he appears to Hagar, um, to Manoah, to, to Moses in the burning bush, is probably, you used the word, a theophany of some sort, God appearing, the invisible God appearing in some way. Yeah. Um, and actually most likely, if you want another technical term, a Christophany. So not just God appearing, but actually the second person of the Trinity, yeah. Christ appearing before he became human. Now, admittedly, we aren't told that directly anywhere, including in the New Testament. Um, it's more about circumstantial evidence and the way the angel speaks and how he's spoken of. So on a few occasions, the characters say, I have seen God. Yeah. Um, and admittedly, some scholars don't think the angel of the Lord is a visible appearance of God at all, but simply a great angel. Um, I tend to lean towards on some of those occasions. I think it's, it's probably got to be the pre-incarnate Christ. But either way, the angel of the Lord, I think, often makes us think of Christ. Because yes. He's a great messenger who has this human-like appearance and manifests God's presence. Yes, I think that's where it's helpful, isn't it? You read it and think, this angel is doing lots of things that remind me of the Lord Jesus. So yeah. if you're thinking, this is a pre-incarnate Christ, amazing mm. but if that angel makes you think oh that helps me better understand who jesus is yeah you're not you're not straying in the dangerous territory either way there are you exactly i mean you could almost say he's he's either the angel of the lord is either the pre-incarnate christ sometimes or a shadow of type almost like a shadow of type yeah. of christ yeah and either way he's pointing to christ yeah the incarnate christ yeah so speaking of our lord um whenever we read this we haven't actually read jesus be called jesus yet he's mm. only been called the son yeah uh <laughs> why it, 
it's not like Voldemort, is it? Like, what is this a rhetorical device? You know, he's not scared um, of saying Jesus. Name. <laughs> I don't think he's scared of saying it. Is he? I think it probably is kind of a rhetorical device. Um, this question ended up in here because uh, I was chatting to Graham, Graham Hunter, after the service, and he he um, brought this up about it's interesting. Yeah. Um, I think what's going on here is a little bit like in John's Gospel, you know, the start of John's Gospel where he speaks of Jesus as the Word of God, yeah. eternal, without using the word, the name Jesus. Uh, for for quite a while um similar sort of thing here it's not that the writer is waiting until chapter two to say surprise the son of god we were talking about chapter one it's jesus yeah. shock it's not it wouldn't be a shock for anybody a rabbit out of hat. <laughs> yeah i think that much would be obvious to a christian even a christian hearing or reading this letter for the first time but it's a bit like in john's gospel he isn't naming him straight away for some reason mm. probably to rhetorical effect so um it also seems to me <laughs> and others that he's called the son initially where the emphasis is f primarily on his exalted status as the eternal son and then when the, the focus shifts a bit to talking about jesus in his humanity and his suffering at that point he's called jesus so i think the first time in chapter two that the name jesus is introduced it's it's when the writer is shifting his emphasis from talking about the glory of the eternal son to saying, yeah, look, yeah. yeah. Do you want to read the verse? So you've got that in front of you. Yeah. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus. Yeah. With glory and honor because of the suffering of death. So you see there's kind of a switch there and he's been talking about how he's greater than angels. And then he's saying, but in a sense, for a time, he was made almost apparently lower than the angels. So the shift in emphasis from glorious eternal son to the the very human and suffering son that's when the word jesus is introduced and i think that's really significant so at the start it's look how glorious he is then it switches to look how the glorious son made himself of humble status out of love for us to achieve our great salvation yeah um it's all about the divine human savior he's always both divine and human in hebrews but the language changes with the switch to a different emphasis being highlighted so yeah rhetorical device in a sense yeah a very important one yeah that's helpful because you could think because even lots of times in your sermons and you mentioned jesus and it's funny isn't it like it's not in the text not there yeah. yeah and i think that's what graham was thinking when he when he was chatting to me after saying well actually the name jesus isn't there and yeah quite right so um i'd love to say it was deliberate so i gave you the chance to highlight that when you preached dave but actually i didn't think to say it but it's it's an important um part of the sermon and how he develops his argument so here's, I feel bad even asking this because it's an annoying, <laughs> it's an annoying question, but I feel like it will help people to think about this. It seems like the author of the Hebrews just flicks open the Old Testament and goes, yep, that's about Jesus. Just sort of, yeah. Yeah. Spin, spin the ball. Yeah. Why not? Let's do that. <laughs> Let's do that one. Apply it to Jesus. Can I? 21st century Cardiffian. I'm, I don't know if that's the technical term for someone who dwells in Cardiff. Yeah. But yeah. Pomprenian. <laughs> um, can I do that? Can I just pick a random Old Testament thing and apply it to Jesus? Um, yeah, see that that's a really interesting way of phrasing the question. I, I think there's a sense in which you can go to any bit of the Old Testament and say there's there's going to be a way in which this points to Jesus. Yes. Yeah. Can you do exactly what the writer of the Hebrews does? Not in exactly the same way. We we aren't writing scripture under the direct inspiration of the Holy Spirit like they were. 
So we've got to be careful that when we look for Jesus, we aren't doing so in a way that's got no reference to the original context. I've got to say, when you read some of the, I, I agree with you, sometimes when you read these passages, like, wow, that feels a bit random. Yeah. But then actually, like with Psalm 2, Psalm 45, when you go back to the original context yeah. and see what's been said there, yeah. and that if you apply that just to the King of Israel, it just yeah. doesn't make sense. Then you start to realize, well, you know, he's not plucking out of, thin air yeah. he's not taken out of context he's very much using it in context most of the most of the pointers shadows types prophecies should be obvious either because they are identified in the new testament yeah. as exactly that for example the sacrifices the promised land melchizedek or because in whole bible context it's fairly plain that's exactly what they are so i'm trying to think of so an example would be um you know, when we were in Genesis, we said Eden is like a temple and Adam and Eve are like priests. Yeah. You don't get the New Testament coming out and saying that. No. But when you look at it in whole Bible context, you realize, no, we're not wrenching that out of context. That's what the writer was trying to achieve. Yeah. It's all about, surprise, surprise, context, context, context. Yeah. Um, so we can go to any bit of the Old Testament and there's, there's some way in which it points to Jesus, even if it's just showing the need for Jesus. Yeah. But we don't have license to go looking for obscure ways. That the Old Testament might be pointing to him. There's pl there's plenty of really plain ways in which it points to him, and they're wonderful enough. Yeah, it's funny, isn't it? Because now, whenever you preach, you know, from one of these Psalms, for example, you almost have to be, oh well, the author of the Hebrews picks this up in a way that we <laughs> wouldn't have expected. Yeah, which is quite interesting, isn't it? But going back to the way he preaches, even the sequence in which he does things is really important. So Psalm 45, where he says, "Your throne, O God," and I tried to briefly say on Sunday. That seems um, completely over the top when you read Psalm 45. Psalm 45 without Jesus doesn't make sense. Yeah. So once he's shown that Psalm 45 is about Jesus, then when he jumps to Psalm 102, yeah. in the beginning, Lord, you laid the foundation of the earth and he applies that to Jesus. Yeah. We're not saying, whoa, that's a huge leap hmm. because he's already shown that Psalm 45 clearly applies to Jesus. Yeah. And he's kind of saying, therefore, yeah. Psalm 45 applies to him and he's God. Yeah. Well, hey, Psalm 102 applies to him as well. Yeah. So the sequence and the flow is important. Yeah, it almost informs the way we preach Psalms, doesn't it? Mm. Say, okay, how do we find Christ in the Psalm or how does it point? Yeah, shadows and types. Yeah. 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 So if anyone out there wants to try preaching a Psalm, take notes from the author to the Hebrews. Yeah, absolutely. And <laughs> also, I mean, it's, it's such an obvious statement as well. We're not writing scripture. So that's why the offer to the Hebrews can do it. And yeah, we can't. and let's be honest, there's occasionally Old Testament quotes in the New where we think, wow, that seems like, humanly speaking, that seems like a stretch. Yeah. And we shouldn't try and do that. But we've got to remember this person is writing, as you said just then, under the direct inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Yeah. Uh, and he is privileged to see that the Bible is written by one divine author and see something that you and I might not have seen. Yeah. We shouldn't be trying to do that all the time. But there's so many obvious pointers in the Old Testament that we can confidently go there and know that we're going to see Jesus. Yeah, great. So this Sunday, Hebrews 2 with me. With Dave Vola. It's our annual general meeting. Yep. We call it a family meeting at the bridge, don't we? Yeah, mainly because we don't want to f make it feel too AGM-like and because generally these meetings aren't restricted to, to just members. Um, though, if you're a member, please be there. We're yep. important you turn up. Please, 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 please. <laughs> Very nice. See you Sunday.